0: Game over. And the final score is. We win. Good. I'm glad you didn't think I was about ready to predict the Super Bowl score today. That's not what we're talking about. I'm, I'm doing a series of messages on the book of the Revelation. And, um, you know, while no one knows the hour of Christ's return in football terms, I think it's safe to say that. Uh, Madonna's already performed, okay? We've already seen the halftime show. Um, Is it the fourth quarter, Pastor Kent? I don't know. Could be. Um, You know, in some ways, if I didn't know better, just looking at what's going on on the earth today, just taking that at face value, you could think that the game looks like it's a bit in doubt, couldn't you? I mean, honestly, couldn't you just looking at what's happening in the world today? You could, if you didn't know better, you could think, man, I, I don't know who wins. I I wonder what the final score really is going to be. A lot of bad things going on on planet earth these days, right? There really is some ways. It looks like the good guys are behind, but as that great theologian Yogi Berra once said, It ain't over till it's over. Okay. And we have to keep that in mind. I'm so thankful for the, the, the theme, the tone of worship today. And uh, we've got a word that we're going to share near the end of my message today that really gives context to what we need to remember. And that is no matter how ugly, crazy, evil, wicked, awful it seems to be here on this planet, the game is never in doubt. God never usurps control, sovereignty, goodness in the midst of the chaos that we're seeing. Oh, and oh, by the way, in football terms, the playing field is a mess, isn't it? I mean, from the seven seals that have been broken and the seven trumpets that have been blown, there's a mixture of natural consequences due to sin and God's judgment that comes on this earth because of sin. I've said it's hard to draw real fine, clear lines in some of this. You don't know when it's just the natural consequence of mankind's sinfulness that brings some of this stuff to the planet, or when it's the the clear judgment of God because of sin. And it's not important that we can draw clear, perfect lines to know what's what. This is not a puzzle to be figured out. This book is not a puzzle to solve, right? It's a book of hope. It's a book of an encouragement. It's a book to remind us that when the game is over and the final score is tabulated and settled, we win. Okay? That's what we have to keep in mind, especially as we're we're plowing through this particular portion and section of where we find ourselves. We always can and should fall back to this truth. God is sovereign and God is good. He is sovereign and he is good. He has a perfect plan and he is making sure that his perfect plan is being executed. It's unfolding exactly when and exactly how he has determined that it should. We're in chapter 9 right now, the second half of the chapter. Uh, Actually, one line is real clear. When I said earlier, you know, it's a little fuzzy sometimes to know what's natural consequence and what's judgment. We talked last week about one line that I think is very, very clear in the process. It's the next slide. The first four trumpets that bring disaster to the earth are in chapter 8. But when we get to chapter 9, there is a clear difference The first four bring disaster to the earth because of mankind and what mankind has done. And we don't know what's consequence, what's judgment. But when we get to the next two trumpets, they are demonically inspired and explicitly directed at, quote, those who dwell on the earth. Who is that talking about, friends? You, me? It's unbelievers. It's It's pagans, it's the wicked, it's the rebellious, it's mankind who refuses to know, love, worship, and serve God. It's the ones who do not bear the seal of God, okay? Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 9, the fifth trumpet, the first of the two that are directed at these dwellers of the earth. We talked last week about the king who was over the abyss, over the pit, I think it's Satan himself. It could be another demonic presence. But anyhow, they release this demonic horde upon the earth. All right. They've been held captive by God's sovereign orders. And in this moment, by his sovereign orders, they are released to attack the dwellers on the earth for a period of five months. No killing is allowed. But it gets so nasty and so bad that the people are begging to die. That sounds pretty nasty, doesn't it? How many of you are glad you're not a dweller on the earth, even though you are here right now? If you know Jesus, you're not one of these, okay? Okay? Okay. I want to share a, one verse that's kind of a summary of what we looked at last week because it makes an important distinction in something that we're going to look at today. In verse number 10, it said, They, these demonic hordes, have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. Keep that in mind as we continue on in what we're looking at today, okay? We're going to have Bob Black come and read the rest of chapter 9 for us. So that'll be verses 13 through 21. So as we have been doing every week to honor the word of God, would you stand please as Bob comes and reads this for us?
1: Uh, Revelation nine thirteen through 21 and the sixth angel angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was two hundred million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision of the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of, the, of fire and, the hyacinth, and of hyacinth and the brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. By the fire, by the smoke, the brimstone was proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in the mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts.
0: Amen. Thanks, Bob. You can have a seat. This sixth trumpet is the second woe that's mentioned in verse 12, where we left off last week. And again, it's judgment coming against those who dwell on the earth. All right, not everybody on the planet it's the wicked the ungodly rebellious mankind who don't have the seal of god upon them you got that right yes. okay be sure that you do the fifth trumpet trumpet number 5 pain and torment for 5 months this time it's even more intense it brings death to a third a third Of the dwellers of the earth. So we're going to work our way as we have been each week through the rest of this chapter, kind of verse by verse, little section by section. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This golden altar, I think it seems to be the same one that we saw in chapter eight, verse number three, where the seven seals were broken. It's also called the golden altar and it's the altar of incense. That's another term for it, where the prayers of the saints that have been prayed for multitudes of centuries have gone up before God, before his throne as sweet incense, as sweet aroma. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I was up early this morning as I always always am on Sunday mornings going over my notes and thinking and preparing and it struck me the culmination of that prayer is about to happen and it it just hit me I don't know how many times I've prayed that how many times do you think you've prayed that prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as in heaven hundreds of times right collectively in this room thousands of times and we're at the point in time where the fulfillment of that prayer is happening. God come and vindicate us. God come and bring righteous judgment. Bring your divine justice to this planet. And this is the moment where it's finally going to happen in totality. The voice that is talked about here from the four horns. It's not the four horns speaking. The voice is coming from where the four horns are. We don't know if it's Christ or if it's another powerful archangel that is speaking here in this moment. Whomever it is, whether it's Jesus himself or a mighty powerful archangel, they are following the divine, sovereign, perfect, all-wise plan of God. I want you to see as this thing continues to intensify, I feel that what's happening on the earth is intensifying, it's being magnified greatly. But you also need to watch for this this intensified, magnified, pointed reminder, time after time after time of who's in control. That was a rhetorical question. Who's in control? God's in control. Even when it's a mess, even when it gets terrible, God continually puts these little reminders into the scripture. It's his voice or a voice under his complete authority that's calling for what happens to happen. These four angels are very, very different than four angels that we saw two chapters ago. In chapter 7, we looked at four angels that have a very different purpose and a very different mission. Let's real quickly go there so that you kind of are getting the big picture a little bit in this. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 and 3, it said this. John wrote, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of God on their foreheads these four angels were holding back destruction and devastation and harm they were used to help preserve The saints of God until the time had come, until the fullness of time had come. That's a far cry from the four we just read about in chapter 9. These four angels aren't at the four corners. They're bound at the river Euphrates. Do you know where the river Euphrates is? It's Baghdad. It's Babylon. It it is Baghdad today, but it's a picture of Babylon. Do you know what Babylon is? Babylon is the picture, the archetype, the anti-God kingdom. It's everything wicked evil that is raised up against the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God going forward. So these four are a very different four in terms of these angels. Babylon is the corrupt, ungodly world and all of its systems, plans, and purposes, all of its ways of thinking that are anti-God, anti-Christ. The first four in chapter 7 are God's ministering angels. They preserve, they protect. These four in chapter 9 are fallen angels. They are wicked, they are evil, and their mission is to destroy. But again, think bigger picture. Is it the devil who releases these four to do their destruction? Who releases them to do this? The voice the voice under God's direction, whether it's God Himself, Jesus, or an archangel, it's God directing this show. Amen? Amen. Think of it like a chessboard, okay? God is not sitting across the chessboard from the devil, and they're not taking turns making their moves. There's only one player in this chess game. Who is it? God. And who's moving all the pieces? God. The devil at best. Is the king or the queen on the board? Do you know how important it is to realize that? This is not two equal powers vying for who's going to win, which kingdom is going to win out. God moves every piece on the board. And at best, the devil is the king or the queen. I'm letting that soak in for a minute because there are times when we look at what's going on in the world and we just think, oh my gosh, what's happening? Nothing is happening apart from God's sovereign control and purpose, folks. Nothing. You know, in high-level chess matches, I don't follow chess or play chess, but I I know enough to know that when you get up to the the grand champions and the masters playing for the world title, in a series of matches they have to win so many, but a lot of the matches end in a draw, right? Right? Not in this case. There's no draws in this one. We win. We win because God wins and we're on his side. Okay. Everybody take a deep breath because it's about to get really intense. Okay. (sighs) Say to yourself, we win. We win. Let me hear you. Okay. Good. Good. We need to remember that as this scene unfolds. Okay. Okay. And the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Two key words that I want you to see here. Prepared and hour. Who is the grand chess master in this game of life that's unfolding before us? It's God, okay? Okay. He is the one orchestrating all the events as they are unfolding before our very eyes. Jesus said, no one knows the hour of my return except who? The Father. The Father knows. Christ himself didn't know. God the Father knows. Do you find it kind of ironic that it says here that these four, even though they're destructive angels, have been prepared for the hour? You see, it's not that God only knows the hour that Jesus returns. He knows the hour that everything is going to unfold in this plan of his. Good or bad. Nothing catches him by surprise. He's got it down to the hour. I think it means by the second, okay? It's not that it's only to the hour. It's down to every final detail. These four angels are released to kill a third of mankind, you know. Early in, in the story, we saw the destruction that came upon the earth from the earthquakes and the volcanoes and all those eruptions and the falling stars or meteors, whatever that happened. But in the first couple seals and the first couple trumpets, that brought destruction to a fourth plus a third of the earth—seven twelfths, fifty-eight point three three percent of the earth was destroyed. Now the destruction comes not just to the earth, but to what? to actual people, the dwellers of the earth. And it's, it's the same numbers, folks. The same numbers. Back to Revelation 6. We looked at this earlier when we were talking about the fourth seal being broken. And again, a voice. God's sovereign, controlled voice calls forth these horsemen. They're to come. And to one of them, authority was given over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and with wild beasts of the earth. A fourth were killed in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Now we get to chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. And these four angels, these wicked, evil, fallen angels, prepared for this hour, were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. So once again, we have a fourth plus a third, 58 and a third percent of the dwellers of the earth are going to be killed. There's two theories about these these horsemen, these uh, these armies, okay? One is that it's demonic hordes that are also unleashed from the abyss that we saw a little bit earlier in the story. Another theory is, no, they're not demonic beings. They're actual human beings with real horses, but they're demonically motivated. They're demonically inspired, okay? Um, It's a less supernatural option, And for some, you know, that's more believable. Almost as if to say it would be like 200 million radical, fundamental Islamic jihadists would be released upon the earth. Now, 200 million is a vast, vast number. But we've seen little pockets of the power of destruction that radical Islam and jihadists have, have we not? So I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that it actually could be human beings. Demonically motivated, demonically inspired, no doubt. Okay, these angels were prepared to kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of horsemen was 200 million. In the Greek, that doesn't say 200 million. That's a number too big for them to even imagine. What it literally says is twice myriad of myriads. And a myriad is 10,000. So it's two times 10,000 times 10,000. That's how they get 200 million, because that's what the math adds up to. It could be symbolic. Could be a symbolic number because we've seen a lot of symbolic numbers in the text, right? I don't think it is. You know why? Because at the end, John said, I heard the number of them. It's almost as if he's saying, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't heard it with my own ears. So I think that's a literal number, not just a symbolic number of how overwhelming the the teeming masses of either these demonic hordes or these demonically inspired actual people on horseback are going to be. It was funny, in my research I found several scholars who said it's, it's got to be symbolic because there's no way anyone could muster troops in that kind of number. 200 million? Are you kidding me? And yet I found in my research that back in 1965, whether it's absolutely true or not, I don't know, but during the Cold War, Communist China bragged of the fact that they had an army of 200 million that they were ready to mobilize. In a minute's time. If necessary. So I don't think we should put this out of the realm of possibility, folks. Okay? It's possible. Having said that, I want to say this. I think that the context of the story fits better. That this is a demonic horde. Not human beings. Inspired by and motivated by demons. But I can see both possibilities. Okay? And I I wouldn't want to fight over which one of those is accurate or true. They're, They're both possible. I just... I think the story lends itself a little more to them being a demonic spirits, demonic presence. All right, let's keep reading. And this is how I saw the vision of the horses and the riders who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths. And in their tails for their tails are like serpents and have heads and with them, they do harm. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over every word and every description there, whatever these are, whomever they are, these horses, these riders, they are terrorizing. They are ferocious and they are destructive. We know that much about them. Okay. But see these beings are different than the last ones we looked at. Their power was only in their tails, and all they could do was bring harm. In this case, the power is coming from their mouths, all right? And they have killing power. They unleash these plagues of fire and smoke and brimstone, and it, it comes from their mouth. I think also, in addition to that, because it talks about their tails. I think we can easily, without reading too much in the story, understand that yes, they have the power to kill, but it's not going to be a quick, fast, painless death. I think it's going to be gruesome. It's going to be torturous in many cases. But when they say, please just kill me with the fifth trumpet, that wouldn't happen with the sixth. It's a part of what happens. Fire and brimstone, sulfur. Those throughout scripture are consistent pictures of death and destruction and finality. When you read about fire and brimstone, those are the kind of connecting words you see regularly. Death, destruction, and finality. Fire and brimstone connect scripturally. Physical death with an eternal permanent destiny. When we get to chapter 20, you're going to see all these dwellers of the earth and all the demonic hosts and hordes and Satan himself, along with the Antichrist, and the false prophet, are going to wind up in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. And there is smoke. Okay? So the Bible always connects this, this physical death with an eternal permanent destiny. But as we finish up today, don't get too excited. I'm not done yet, but we're kind of going around the final corner. I want to talk about this little phrase for the power of the horses is in their mouths. Because I I believe that there's a secondary purpose that that power possesses beyond just killing people with this fire and brimstone and smoke and bringing physical death and eventually eternal separation to people. Now, what comes out of their mouth doesn't bring the separation. It's their own choices that bring that about, but they are connected. I think there's a secondary purpose a secondary thing that's coming out of their mouths that we need to understand, okay? I don't have time this morning to give you a lot of examples of what I'm talking about, but I want to whet your appetite and I want to give you a couple of them. I believe that the power in the mouths of these demonic beings is not only the power of the plagues to kill. It's very clear, isn't it, that that's surely a huge part of what it is. We've just seen that, okay? I believe that the power in their mouths is also a great power to deceive those who dwell on the earth. Out of their mouths comes, in addition to the power to kill through these plagues, out of their mouths also comes a destructive flood of words. And I want to show you the connection here. we have got to jump around a little bit, and I'm only going to give you a little bit of the story in two different spots of the revelation. When we get to these places, I will teach in much fuller detail of what I'm talking about, but I just wanted to whet your appetite and show you again, kind of how this thing's unfolding and how different parts of this fit together. Maybe a little bit better. If you go to chapter 12, it's kind of a, A flashback into history and chapter 12 gives us a panoramic view, the history of the struggle between God's people, Israel, the church, Christ, the whole shebang, God's people, God's plan, and the devil. All right. That's what chapter 12 is all about. But at the beginning, excuse me, near the end of that chapter in verses 13 through 15, it says this. And when the dragon, who's the dragon? The devil. Okay, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. That's either reference to Mary and Jesus or, or the church giving birth to believers. It, it's probably a picture of both. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent and the serpent poured water like a river out of his what out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. Not a literal flood of water, folks. A flood of words. An anti-God, anti-Christ message. Bringing persecution with the hopes of destruction to God's people. That's always been his plan, hasn't it? Chapter 13 is the story of the beast, the Antichrist, who rises up to deceive the world and to draw mankind away from God and towards, to the worship of himself. Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 says this, There was given to him, and him is the beast, the Antichrist, given to him a what? a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. So the words of the antichrist are anti-God. They are aimed at those who dwell in heaven, but they impact specifically and very strongly those who dwell on the earth. They bring deception, delusion to those who dwell on the earth. Throughout the word of God, the devil is portrayed as a liar, the accuser, the deceiver, right? Yes, he came to kill, steal, and destroy. There's no doubt about that. But that's not the only thing he came to do. He also came to deceive, to delude, to accuse, to lie. He's the father of lies, Jesus said. He uses the power of words that come out of his mouth, that I think Revelation 9 is alluding to, to bring an accomplished deception. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Did God really say that he did that throughout Scripture to bring discouragement and accusation against God's people? Do you remember the story of Nehemiah when he's rebuilding the wall? Enemies from the pit of hell disguised as people came to speak discouragement and confusion, To Nehemiah and to his troops, anything to thwart the plan of God to draw focus to himself is what the devil will do with the flood of words that come out of his mouth. For goodness sakes, even Jesus in Luke chapter four, when he went into the wilderness and was tempted, the first shot was, hey, if you'll just worship me, I'll, I'll give you anything, everything you want. The tactic may change a little bit, but it's always aimed at the same thing. And so I think it's important for us to understand when Revelation chapter 9 talks about the power in the mouths of these beings. It is a destructive power to kill. But I also think coupled with that is a destructive demonically inspired power to delude and to deceive those who dwell on the earth. Here's Here's the biggest reason why I believe that. Verse 20 of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. It didn't say they couldn't repent, it says they wouldn't. Do you sit in a place where you go, how on God's, maybe not so green, earth at this point in time, how could you watch all these people be killed and you not repent? What are you, crazy in the head? And you know what the answer is? They are. They are under a spirit of deception and delusion that is so powerful. So powerful. I see again a parallel in the story of Moses and the children of Israel and the plagues and their coming out of Egypt. Remember Pharaoh's heart was he kept hardening his heart and hardening his heart as he kept watching miracle after miracle of God's desire to deliver his people. Finally, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but only after Pharaoh had hardened it enough times that God went, nothing's going to change in this boy. It's the same kind of delusional spirit that comes over people, that causes them not to repent because somehow they don't see what's at stake here. Oh my God, if I don't repent... What happened to them could happen to me. That just kind of blows right by him, doesn't it? Uh, If it weren't in the book, I wouldn't believe it possible. Right? But it's in here. That's what's going to happen. Church, there is an even stronger or as strong deceiving, deluding spirit at work in the world today. And it is the spirit of the Antichrist. You mean it's here? You mean we're we're right here at the end? No. Don't get too nervous. All right? I'm not making predictions as to where we're at in the plot, in the grand scope and scheme of things. But the same guy who wrote and had the revelation, the apostle John, wrote books right before, well skip Jude, right before the revelation called first, second, and third John. Listen to what he writes. First John chapter two, verses 18 through 20. Children, it is the last hour. Now, again, this was written back in the first century. So there's this sense of the end is any time now, but we've been around 1900 years since this is written, maybe longer than that, but around that amount of time. And so there's a sense of imminence with not yet. All kind of going together. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Oh, gosh. So they've had an influence in the church, haven't they? Hmm. But they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us, but you have an anointing from the Holy one. And you all know, in other words, God will give to his people a discerning spirit to know his voice from the voice of the antichrist. Let's go ahead and read a little later in the book. The fourth chapter, verses 2 through 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen is right. A lot of Christians get all nervous and wonder, how is God going to keep us through this time? How are we going to make it? This sounds too evil, too awful, too terrible. How are we going to make it? David Wilkerson is passed away now. But uh, World Challenge Ministries continues to print some of his messages Um, that he previously delivered. And he has a message. God is going to see you through hard times that he delivered back in the 90s. And I want to read a paragraph from this message to you because it's talking about the fact that Jesus is going to take care of his bride. He won't neglect her. He won't abandon her. He will take care of her. And that's us. But he says, don't try and figure out how we will go through. Excuse me. Don't try to figure out how he will go about preserving you. You can't figure it out any more than you could have guessed how he could have opened the Red Sea. How he could have kept the Hebrew children alive in the fiery furnace. How he would have shut the mouths of hungry lions all night long as Daniel sat right in the middle of them. How he could bring water out of a rock and bread from the sky. How he could feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. We can never figure it out. We just need to know that God is a covenant-keeping God. And he's made a promise to his people to see them through and to keep them no matter how tough it gets out there. Folks, the same John who had and wrote the Revelation wrote these words we just read in First John. This spirit of the Antichrist has been working throughout the history of the church. It's nothing new, but I believe it is intensifying in its efforts to bring deception and delusion upon the world today. To bring such a great hardness in the dwellers on the earth that they will not repent. Even when they see what happens when you don't. This Antichrist spirit is also preparing the great enemies of God for the final battle. That we'll get to in chapter 19. But I want you to see and understand. I believe that there are two things simultaneously happening on the earth today. The spirit of God is moving like a flood throughout this world. There are testimonies and stories of God's miraculous power being exhibited all over this earth. There are revivals breaking out in many places on this planet. People are coming to Christ, even in the hardest of Muslim nations. Dreams and visions are coming to these people of the Messiah, of Jesus. And they are coming in great number to faith in him as Savior, as Lord. But there are two simultaneous floods and waves happening. The spirit of God is being poured out and the spirit of this Antichrist is being poured out as well. In little ways, in subtle ways, but in big ways also. I just read in World Magazine this week that in New York City, coming very, very soon, unless something miraculously changes, the the school board is voting to kick churches out of school buildings. They they pay rent. They only meet when there are non-school activities going on. They have been great tenants. The city is this close to saying, get out of here. You're done. We don't want you anymore. And you know, as Americans, we just throw up our arms. We get so disgusted by that and so concerned and we don't know anything about persecution. If you think that's persecution, we don't know the half of it. The same magazine talks about what's going on in northern Nigeria. Because the violence is so strong against Christians, they've had 24-hour Curfews, where the police have been out and kind of watching and monitoring things. There's an article in here about that curfew being lifted in, in January 20th or 23rd, something like that. And as a result of that, there have been all kinds of bombings of churches. 200 Christians have been killed by radical Al-Qaeda followers to the point where there's a mass exodus of Christians out of the nation of Nigeria. And we think it's bad because New York City might not be able to use school buildings. That is bad, okay? But it's almost nothing in comparison to this. The Arab Spring, the quote-unquote democracy movement that's going on over in the Middle East, I'm sorry, it's nothing more than an opportunity for radical Islam to take a foothold in those countries. That is not a statement that says Mubarak was great or that Assad in Syria is great. But I make no apology to make the statement that what's trying to follow them is far worse. It is. There's an intention in this thing that's enormous. Read online the other day that uh, the uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, not Khomeini, the one we knew back in the late 70s, but Khamenei, was quoted as saying this this past week at a prayer service at Tehran University. The Zionist regime, you all know who that is, don't you? Israel. The Zionist regime is a cancerous tumor and it will be removed. There's an article in today's Denver Post on the back of the front section where they always go when they deal with these kind of things, talking about Iran's ground exercises adding to the nuclear, Tensions that exist over there—they've mobilized troops, troops to go on these little training expeditions to prepare for when they plan on shutting down the Strait of Hormuz and the oil flow, and when they get their nukes up and about ready to go. They're—they're they're doing this against um, imaginary hostile enemy combatants, but it's got two names: Israel and the United States. Okay. The president of Iran is committed to ushering in the Mahdi, who they believe is the Messiah who is coming. And part of what he's going to do is exterminate Israel. So they're on this mission to get this done. If that doesn't convince you, this one just blew my mind. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, our current Secretary of Defense, has said publicly that he believes Israel is going to, not might, but is going to, attack Iran in April, May, or June to stop their nuclear armaments. It's part of why our nation is begging Israel to behave. Folks, can I just say to you, that's an antichrist spirit because nobody has the courage to stand up and say to Iran, what, what are you doing? You, you, you call them a cancerous tumor and you really do want to eradicate them. You want to, you stop it. You don't hear that. It's Israel, you stop it. What are you What are you doing? To defend themselves. Pastor you're getting very political. I hope to be getting very biblical. Okay. That's just a little taste of what's working. In the world today folks. But I want you to know. That that same antichrist spirit. Is knocking on the door of many churches. In this world today. And some of them are letting it in. Whether it's theological. Belief. Belief about Jesus and who he is and is he really the savior? Is he really the only way? And on and on and all that go. The things that for centuries have stood as the non-negotiables of the Christian faith suddenly in some places are just kind of up for grabs. And then the moral behaviors, the moral standards that have just absolutely fallen by the wayside in many places that name the name of Christ. That's why I probably sound like a broken record to you. Stay in the word. Be in the word. Be sure that you are exposing yourself to sound teaching. Not flashy, but sound meat and potatoes truth. You need to steep yourself in God's word and be sitting under, whether it's me or listening to people on the radio who are going to give you the sum of God's word, who are going to be teaching you the truth of what the scripture says. You need to stay close to Jesus. You need to stay close to his Holy Spirit. You need to be, we need to be people of prayer, not just giving all our requests to God, but we need to develop a listening ear as well. We had a word come forth this morning that I want Rob to come and share, if, if you would, please. Because I think when we talk about staying close to the spirit, we don't only only need to stay close to the written word of God. We need to be people in touch with the rhema word of God. What God desires to speak into the context of life and the situations that we find ourselves in today. Amen. This is a great reminder. It, it so goes with what I'm talking about today. So, Rob, if you'd just kind of in a nutshell share what was given to you.
2: I'd like for all of us to stand. Awesome. Uh, Good. And and I would invite you to prepare your hearts for this is where the rubber meets the road um, in the sense of the Father saying, this is for you, and that's for every person in this room. And because He's the living God, He can do that. And so, go ahead. We're going, to finish, we're
0: going to finish finish with an exercise this morning that will help us put into practice that very thing that
2: he said. Okay? These are actually the compilation of three words that came during worship, and they are this: uh, There's been a shift in the spirit, uh, and I believe this person said over the last several weeks, things are accelerating; they're happening more quickly like a baby's delivery, a childbirth where the child was stuck and now is moving quickly, more quickly, into delivery. And the Father's word to us is, Raise your expectations. Raise your hope in the Lord. This is to Good Shepherd Church as well as to the world. And I have a sense, this is my interpretation now, that this word is because of the Lord's and the Father's pleasure in you as a people, especially as a result of what he saw in your hearts during the fast. This is particularly to the fatherless, his word to you is, you are surrounded in my love. And also, um, it is a praying for re- the refining of the Lord in your life as part of this preparation. The Father wants us to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And that is between you and him. And all of us in him.
0: So I've got a couple things we're going to, you can have a seat. I've got a couple things we're going to do that'll help you kind of measure yourself. You know, the book of second Corinthians chapter 13, verse number five, I think it is says, examine yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. So it's a great thing once in a while to take stock in our lives and how we're doing, what we're doing, where we find ourselves to kind of see, are we walking in God's will for us? Again, I want to say this. We finish talking about the Antichrist spirit and all that it's doing in the world. That's not our focus. Our focus is on the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. Because greater is he who's in us and who's active in the world than the one that is acting in the world. Amen? Amen? So we've got to keep that as our focus, folks. God is the great chess master of this thing we're seeing played out. All right? But your responsibility, my responsibility, be in the word, stay in the word, get under good teaching, stay close to Jesus, stay close to his Holy Spirit, pray fast. Don't just give your requests, get that listening ear to hear his voice. Stay in fellowship with other believers. And I'm not just talking. So come Sunday morning and worship together and listen to me teach. I'm talking beyond just Sunday morning because this can be a spectator sport, folks. Let's, who are we kidding? It can be, I'm talking about those relationships where iron sharpens iron and you have brothers and sisters in your life who can help you stay on track, stay on the path, keep walking in obedience to Christ. You need that. I need that more today than ever before. I think that's the case. Be accountable. Let God in. So what I want to finish with this morning is just a little time of going back to the beginning of this book. I felt very strongly this week that the Lord wanted us to do this. So um, back to the seven letters to the seven churches. Because when we first started this, this teaching, I reminded you that I think those letters have two purposes. They were actual letters to actual churches dealing with actual issues. But they also had a secondary purpose, and that was this is what an overcoming church that's alive in the last days will look like these are the things they will do. And these are the things they'll make sure that they don't do. And so I'm really quickly going to run you through this. And I want you to have in your heart today, a spirit that says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And wicked doesn't mean you, that you're just evil at the core of who you are. Wicked means twisted. It's, it's off track. It's, out of phase. Okay. Anything you see on this list that, that is not where you're living. Repent, ask God to help you. And he's not going to beat you up. He's going to help you. Right. Okay. So let's, let's look at these Ephesus. Keep persevering, be about God's business and work hard at it. Be discerning, test teachers and their teachings. Don't tolerate evil. Stay in love with Jesus. To the church at Smyrna, stay faithful in difficulty and tribulation. Discern and stand against false teaching. Especially in that case, it was legalism. To the church at Pergamum, hold fast to the truth and to the faith. Are you seeing that repeat with every one of these in some form? Don't tolerate idolatry or immorality. To Thyatira, continue to increase in your love and your faith and your service to the Lord. Don't tolerate Jezebel. Sexual sin and rebellion to authority. Hold fast to the faith. To Sardis, wake up. Stay alert. To Philadelphia, persevere. Keep in the word. Don't deny Jesus. To Laodicea, don't be lukewarm. Know your purpose and live it out wholeheartedly. Don't be self-sufficient and self-reliant. Stay sensitive to your need for Jesus every day. Open your heart and life to him every day. So we're going to just going to sit here in silence for just a couple of minutes. And David, if you would, every 10, 15 seconds, roll through those three. And I want to give you a moment just to let God search your heart. And folks, again, this is, this is to be an encouragement as, as Rob said, God's refining fire. Those whom he loves, he disciplines, He cares enough about you not to leave you stuck in a place where you're not overcoming, where you're not walking in victory. That's his heart for us. That's the purpose for refinement. The purpose for repentance is that we could experience the seasons of refreshing that he wants to bring to all of our lives. So we're just going to roll through these. And if you want somebody to pray with you or for you anytime during the next three, five minutes, make your way up front. We've got some ministry team people who will join you when I officially pray and dismiss us. If you just rather come more in a private kind of moment, they'll still be up here or they'll come join you after we're done. But let's just take a few moments and let God search our hearts to give us the grace and the strength to walk as overcomers. Is that his heart for you and me? It is. is. Come Holy Spirit. Come and search us to help us. In Jesus name. to Just stand with me, please? You know, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, we don't, even in life, let alone in church, we don't spend enough time just silent thinking about. So how are we doing? Where are we at? What's going on? And I think this is a good thing. Uh, David, I'm going to ask if you would please just keep rolling through those because even when we're done, I know some of you are like me. You want to sit back down and write that whole list down. And so we'll roll through them. So if that's something you want to do, you do that. Because I would, again, encourage you. This is, should be kind of an ongoing little checklist that we open our hearts before God. And we examine ourselves and we test ourselves and we see, Lord, am I living in those ways that will help me be or stay an overcomer? Do you want to be an overcomer? I know you do. It's following those kind of things, not as a checklist of duties, but as the wisdom of God. As to what it's going to take in the days in which we live to walk in his overcoming victory. Those are the kind of things it's going to take. So Father, I thank you for uh, the attentive spirit that has been in this room today. For the hearts of our people that long to overcome. That long to walk in the victory that you desire to give them. Jesus, I I pray again that your Holy Spirit would guard and seal our hearts and minds, that we would not get off in a focus upon the spirit of Antichrist, all the evil in the world, but that we would, in the midst of where we see that stuff happening, we will remember that you are greater, that your heart is for us to overcome, that you will protect us, that you will be with us, that you will use us. You have purpose for us being here in these days. We live in an amazing time, Lord, and we're thankful for that. Even as we confess, okay, we're a little bit scared, but more than that, we're thankful that we know you and that you have us for such a time as this. I pray blessing. I speak blessing over your people today and encouragement over their hearts and minds. By your grace, Lord, we will overcome. We will be a part of your righteous, victorious army. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Have a great week.